Hello and thank you for tuning in to the third season of the iStart PIA Relay podcast, brought to you by Dementia Researcher. iStart is a professional society and part of the Alzheimer's Association, representing scientists, physicians and other dementia professionals active in researching and understanding the causes and treatments of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In this five-part series, we've once again asked members of the iStart professional interest areas to take turns at interviewing their colleagues and being interviewed themselves, with the interviewee going on to be the interviewer of the next episode. We'll be releasing one of these podcasts each day in the build-up to the Alzheimer's Association International Conference to showcase the amazing work of the iStart PIAs. So this week, you're going to hear all about fluid biomarkers, atypical Alzheimer's disease, reserve, resilience and protective factors, immunity and neurodegeneration, and technology in dementia, with some amazing guests. Hello everyone, and thanks for joining us. My name is Rick Ossekoppelen, and I'm Associate Professor of Translational Neuroscience, and I work at the Amsterdam University Medical Center in the Netherlands, and at Lund University in Sweden. I am also the vice chair of the Atypical Alzheimer's Disease Professional Interest Area. And today I'm delighted to be talking with Hamid uh, Sorabi. Hello, Hamid. It's, it's a real ple- uh, uh, great pleasure to meet you. Hello, Rick. Thank you. The same here. Can I start by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us which uh, professional interest area you are involved with? Sure. Um, I'm an associate professor of psychology and neuroscience, and I'm based at Murdoch University in Western Australia, where I'm leading the Center for Healthy Aging. I'm also a steering committee member for the Reserve Resilience and Protective Factors for the Alzheimer's Association, ISTART PIA. So, uh, very happy to be talking about our PR today. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm looking forward to it as well. So, so before we, we jump into the topic, I, I want to learn a little bit more about yourself first. So can, can you maybe tell me what brought you to, to dementia research? Sure. Um, I started my research back in 1990 when I was doing a master's in psychology, in clinical psychology to be um, exact. And, and uh, for my thesis, I was working on memory performances in schizophrenia and brain injury. So my love for memory research goes back to many years ago, but uh, I haven't started um, uh, dementia research uh, until I got to migrate to Australia in 2004. And uh, then in a couple of years later, in 2006, I started my PhD. Um, here in uh, uh, Australia, I started the project on uh, identifying the risk factors as well as new measures of, um, do, for, for identifying those who are at risk of Alzheimer's disease. So uh, the um, background in dementia research goes back to about uh, maybe um, 16, 17 years ago. And since then, I've been delighted to work on uh, developing novel measures for identifying those who are at risk of dementia, as well as investigating psychological and modifiable risk factors, lifestyle risk factors for, for dementia. Right. And, and given your, your role in, the, in, uh, in, in this professional interest area, uh, I assume your current research is also strongly focused on, on protective factors against uh, dementia or Alzheimer's disease particularly. It is, yes, of course, um, that's a great comment and uh, 
my my main area currently is uh, to look into lifestyle factors from single to multimodal interventions and see if we can potentially delay or prevent risk of dementia in older adults. So I'm uh, involved in several projects, including the um, Oz Arrow, which is a uh, sort of sub-study uh, affiliated with WW Fingers study that pretty much, I guess, it's a very well-known study world, uh, worldwide. So I'm involved in those um, studies and mainly I'm leading the neurocognitive and outcome measures for that project. Right. Can you give any example of, of those lifestyle factors you are investigating? So there are so many of them as uh, uh, there was a, a paper published in Lancet in 2020 coming up with about 12 different risk factors discussing that about 40% of dementia risk can potentially be um, sort of modified or changed over time if we do intervene. Um, and the risk factors that we decided to pick up for our own study um, includes mainly diet, physical exercise, cognitive uh, training and exercise as well as mm, sleep and um, we are also looking uh, closely uh, at um, different modes of physical exercise to see which one can be the best one that potentially uh, can delay the risk of Alzheimer's. Also, uh, we are looking into uh, psychological factors, but we are not doing any intervention. We are using observational measures just to assess and follow up on the potential for depression, uh, for anxiety and stress, uh, and see if uh, the change in these uh, can be achieved or will be achieved during the multimodal intervention that we are doing and potentially this uh, intervention could be improving the quality of life of our older adults, sort of minimizing depression and anxiety and stress level and hopefully delaying the risk of dementia. Right. So you, you indeed mentioned quite a list of, of potential uh, interventions. Do, 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 you have a, do you have a personal hierarchy of which you think are potentially most um, uh, promising as, as a unimodal intervention? Yeah, I, th I think uh, the um, core intervention should be considered based on what are the uh, sort of um, circumstances and lifestyle factors that a person is most vulnerable to. Uh, I think a more personalized approach to lifestyle factors could be the best approach. Um, if we, uh, for example, come up with a um, sort of package of sleep, physical exercise, diet, and saying that everybody can benefit from them, well, there are some older adults who are actually physically active, who have a great diet and follow very healthy diet, they also don't see much of trouble with sleeping. But there are other risk factors that we should look at. For example, uh, they may be drinking. And we know that alcohol in late life could be a very dangerous uh, sort of factor for developing Alzheimer's later. 
the same is with potential signs and symptoms of depression, anxiety. Um, also, using or abusing uh, different drugs, uh, which isn't uncommon in older adults. So we need to uh, go towards personalized approach for such risk factors. But the, the package that all studies currently are looking at uh, includes the mainly physical exercise, diet, and also cognitive exercises. And our sleep is an addition to uh, sort of, you know, this, this pack, uh, which hasn't been quite examined as part of a multimodal approach. Right. Yeah, I, I really like your, your perspective on, on, uh, on a more individualized uh, approach, right? Because you, you can imagine someone that's already running a marathon on, on a weekly basis wouldn't benefit exactly. much from, from, from additional physical exercise, right? So. No, I was just going to say that uh, we have the inclusion criteria and many older adults that uh, come to join our study uh, do not meet the criteria because they're too fit to be in this study. So, uh, but they are still very concerned about developing dementia and uh, those concerns should be taken seriously and we need to look into each individual and what are their concerns and why they are concerned and then try to help them based on that. Right. So is your vision um, when, when uh, applying this intervention to, to individuals to, to actually prevent um, uh, Alzheimer's disease from, from emerging, so, so uh, preventing the, the, the pathology from, from starting, or, and or do you think it will help individuals to better cope with Alzheimer's disease pathology when, when it happens? Well, it depends. Uh, we are sort of considering which of these risk factors. For example, uh, talking about sleep, we used to believe that the neurodegenerative changes that happen in the brain increase the signs and symptoms of poor sleep. Uh, but later on we realized that in fact sleep is a major factor in helping us to get um, clearance of amyloid beta from the brain and that was supported in several CSF studies during sleep. And so um, it's, it's a sort of you know two-way um, uh, interaction between these risk factors and the neurodegeneration that happens as we age in some specific group of individuals who may have uh, some susceptibility due, um, due to their genetic background, uh, developmental uh, conditions and anything else that might have affected their, their uh, physical health um, in the life. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's very interesting. So what, one thought, thought I had while, while listening to you is, you know, in general, I think it's, it's very difficult to change behavior. So my, my question to you is also to, to, to what degree do you, do you practice what you preach? Do, do you adhere to the, the lifestyle advices, you know, that, that are generally re recommended? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, changing behavior is indeed very difficult. We couldn't just simply advise everybody go and do half an hour or 40 minutes or one hour of physical exercise a day, half an hour of cognitive training a day, and also follow a very healthy diet that may not be as enjoyable as everybody likes it. And so combining all of these requires an effortful uh, sort of exercise and each person has to put quite a bit of 
um, time and energy behind it to get um, such intervention going. But, but in terms of research, usually we have things in place to promote the intervention and keep motivating our participants. For example, uh, we have diaries that our participants in control and also in intervention groups have to complete saying that how much they have actually followed. Although this is not a direct motivation, a direct request, it implies that, okay, somebody is watching me how much I'm doing what I need to do. And so people usually tend to follow um, the, the intervention because they, re they are required to record. They also have follow-up phone calls on a monthly basis. And in addition to that, we have um, uh, group sessions for both intervention individuals uh, or con uh, individual uh, group and also control group. So they come to uh, group sessions and we discuss what are the problems with following the uh, intervention that we want them to follow uh, and also how we can help them to overcome those. So these sort of exercises can continue their can help them continue their motivation um, for the duration of the study. But of course, when it comes to uh, a person that wants to sort of get their risk factors under control, uh, getting motivated and continuing um, for a long time of one, two, three, four years uh, doing all of these different interactions, uh, sorry, interventions uh, require uh, quite a bit of effort and their psychological intervention could be one of the uh, potential uh, helps that, that these individuals can get. Right. And, and, and regarding my, my second part of the question, the, the bit more personal components. So do you, do you tick all the, uh, all the boxes yourself in, in terms of lifestyles? So do, do you get enough sleep? Do you exercise enough? Do you follow a healthy diet, etc.? <laughs> That's a tricky one. So I do some of it, but not all of it. Uh, sleep is perhaps my main difficulty. Uh, most of the work is done at night, like you and anybody else. I uh, recognize that very much. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the sleep part is not as good as it should be, but the diet and uh, I guess exercise uh, is, is something that I'm sort of following to some degree. Good. Excellent. So, so now, now more general to, towards the field of, of reserve, resilience, protective factors. Um, so what do you consider the, the, the hot topics in that field at the moment? Yeah. So um, cognitive reserve and then resilience uh, is a hot topic by itself to be fair. Um, I can say that there are many hot topics in this field. Right now, for example, understanding that how um, and what are the underlying mechanisms of reserve is a very major uh, sort of uh, field of study. Also, um, we are looking at big data, combining various studies to come up with large number of data that we uh, can potentially look into and find out how reserve and resilience 
um, contribute to delaying or preventing Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And then um, one of the other sort of um, hot topics is developing novel composite and PAC scores. And by PAC, I mean the preclinical Alzheimer's cognitive composite scores, uh, so that they are independent of the measures and therefore anybody can use it rather than just, you know, using specific measure for every study. Uh, people can measure, can use measures that are cognitive domain specific. And then we can hopefully come up with some understanding that these composite measures can or cannot help us to identify those who are at risk and can we use these um, PAC scores for outcome measures of different research projects and also for following up the um, uh, treatment and intervention uh, effect on cognitive trajectory. So these are different um, hot topics that I think are of interest, but also um, in relation to reserve and resili resilience, I think developmental approach that uh, our current um, sort of team within, within the uh, reserve and resilience uh, is looking into and how uh, neurodevelopmental disorders can potentially um, contribute to uh, higher risk of dementia uh, in the presence of reserve uh, is, is a very hot topic and also extremely novel that hasn't been touched. So uh, hopefully we can come up with a um, publication soon. It is a work in progress, um, still in the very early stages, uh, but um, we are working to, uh, to see if neurodevelopmental conditions like autism, uh, Down syndrome, ADHD and so on, increase the risk of Alzheimer's and what is the role of reserve and resilience in between. Right. So that, that would sort of point towards a very early life vulnerability that that, uh, uh, that increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease or dementia in general in, in, in later life. Did that understand that correctly? Uh, that's, that's correct. Uh, the problem with neurodevelopmental conditions is that they have most of those modifiable risk factors as part of the package of signs and symptoms that they have. For example, when we are talking about autism, it comes with sleep difficulties. Uh, it also comes with social isolation. It also comes with hearing difficulties and diet problems. And uh, we know that all of these are risk factors for uh, future dementia. Um, we don't know, however, how in the context of autism they work though. And also whether um, um, autistic individuals with higher cognitive reserve, for example, will be more immune to these risk factors compared to other autistic individuals. So these are uh, things that we are currently trying to understand and doing research on. As I said, it is uh, still in the very early stages, but we are very hopeful that um, we can come up with a uh, review or a white paper uh, towards early next year for publication by RPA. Yeah, it sounds really exciting. I already look forward to reading it. Uh, I also Two follow-up questions on other hot topics you, you, you identified. So the first one was underlying mechanisms. Um, so 
do you think that's important for uh, a better understanding how potential non-pharmacological interventions might work? Or do you think there's also potential for maybe identifying uh, some biological targets to boost uh, resilience or, or reserve? So, exactly. We, we think that there could be some biological uh, underpinning to this. Um, and that's where some animal studies are right now conducted to identify that how potentially reserve in animals can be uh, assessed and how those with a better uh, life experiences at a younger age can be more immune to neuropathology later in life compared to other animals. So there are different projects in this from cell model to animal models. Mm, and I think that um, hopefully we can hear from them uh, not, you know, too far in, in maybe uh, a few years we, uh, or even maybe sooner uh, we, we can hear the outcomes of those studies and see what they have found and how they believe reserve can contribute to the risk of dementia. Right. So you, you mentioned the immune system as a, as a potential player in, uh, in, in providing resilience. Uh, are there any other uh, biological mechanisms that, that you think may be important for um, resilience and reserve? Well, there are many pathways. One of the uh, uh, main pathways that right now neuroimaging studies are trying to understand uh, goes back to um, the function of the brain. And it seems that reserve has some functional um, component into it that can be uh, imaged. We, we know that brain function can be imaged. That's, you know, something that has been established. We know that the default network, for example, uh, of the brain has been properly uh, identified. Uh, but we don't know how reserve could potentially contribute to all of these or how they can contribute to reserve the other way around. So all of these are topics of you know, research and um, hopefully uh, we, can, we can hear about them uh, more more in the near future. Right. Another question I had re relates to the, the, the big data you, you mentioned, which uh, indeed offers massive opportunities. Um, so I was just wondering in your specific field, uh, what kind of questions will you be able to answer using, using big data that was not possible before? Well, that's, that's a very good question. Uh, right now, we don't have big data. <laughs> we are trying to go towards that end up accessing big data. Uh, so uh, that means that several uh, large-scale studies that have been completed uh, or are still undergoing are coming together helping each other and using databases that can be combined. We are trying to understand that with such big data, can still reserve be considered as one of the factors that contribute to the risk of dementia. And also, uh, as uh, you can imagine, the um, uh, sort of um, cohort composition for each of these studies uh, is different. Uh, some studies have uh, sort of different ethnocultural uh, groups within them. Some studies don't have and they're mainly Caucasian based. 
uh, sort of cohorts. Uh, some studies have uh, different lifestyle factors involved in compared to others. And all of this can be potentially looked at when we combine all the data together because then that gives us a continuum of data that we can um, go from 0 to 100 understanding better that which factor and in between how reserve could contribute to, to the future risk of uh, dementia. One of the other sort of potentials is uh, that big data can help us to look into um, genetic backgrounds and how um, genetic risk factors and reserve can interact to increase or decrease the risk of dementia later in life. So um, this isn't sort of, you know, something which is quite established right now. Uh, we are hoping that with big data, we can have better answer to such questions. Yeah, thanks, thanks so much. It's very clear. Um, one, I think it will be a challenging question as well, because there are so many publications in, uh, in the field, but I, I'm going to ask you to pick the one publication from last year that you are most excited about from, from your, your field, and, and please explain why. Uh, one publication that I'm most excited. <laughs> so I should say that the, um, the publication that I'm very excited about is a paper published by uh, Jakob Stern and colleagues. Um, and that paper is a white paper describing how um, reserve should be defined, how it should be uh, studied and how it should be measured. I think that paper provides a framework for all of us to talk the same language. And that's where my excitement comes because um, if you look at the papers in um, our field, you see that each researcher has come up with their own definition of reserve and resilience and also uh, maintenance and so on, uh, brain maintenance and so on. And so this, this paper gives that framework that if you are talking about reserve, everybody knows what we are talking about. And if you are talking about measures for reserve, everybody again uses similar measures so that we know what we are measuring. That kind of uh, framework, I think, can help us a lot in future studies. Right. Yeah. So that relates to, to, to my next question is, so what, what you consider as, as, as the major challenges in, in the field? So, so one major challenge is, of course, making sure people talk the same language, right? If they say reserve, that, that they're actually me meaning the, the, the same thing. Um, are, are there any additional challenges in, in the field at the moment? Well, there are many challenges, um, like any other field of research. Um, our, our field is not without, without challenge. Of course, um, identifying uh, uh, proper <laughs> channels of funding is one of the measures. We know how uh, getting uh, funding is difficult. Um, and when it comes to reserve, it becomes even more difficult. Um, is, it, is, it, is it more difficult, you, you think, because that, that, that's important information for the, the early career researchers that, that, yeah. that, that are listening right now? So is this field, is it, is it more difficult to obtain funding? I, I, I'm a bit biased, though, I should mm. say. 
um, because that's my field. And so I think that our mm, funding is very tight and very, very uh, limited. For mm, uh, early career and mid-career researchers, there are many pathways that definitely they can uh, tap into when it comes to reserve. And uh, one of the initiatives, uh, I think it was NIH or NIA, um, that Jakob Stern and colleagues uh, promoted was to get support for early to mid-career researchers um, so that they can get funding to specifically go and do research on reserve. So, uh, although I'm biased, um, I think uh, uh, we all uh, are trying to get more uh, funding and definitely it's not an easy job. No. We, we, we can agree on that, uh, I guess, irrespective of the, of the field we're, we're working on. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, can you tell us a little bit about how the, the work of the Reserve Resilience and Protective Factors Professional Interest Area supports your field of research? Yeah, well, um, one of the, uh, guess, um, I, I guess one of the main reasons for such PR is to promote uh, collaboration between researchers um, and also to come up with novel ideas and to um, sort of develop consensus amongst um, researchers and so our PR has been pretty successful in doing that uh, with webinars, with scientific sessions, also white papers and the main white paper that came, you know, just, just couple of years ago by um, our PR um, and many other sort of initiatives that can help our field to move forward. Uh, so I guess um, for the early to mid-career researchers, it is pretty important to know that uh, they can find many information and uh, many details about what our PR is doing and how our PR is working. Uh, in the web page uh, within the Alzheimer's Association iStart uh, and also through the LinkedIn page that we have for our reserve and uh, resilience and protective factors. Uh, so um, the, the um, other sort of uh, initiative that our PI has been doing to promote our research um, is um, they're trying to uh, establish a, well not to establish, but they're trying to come up with a um, newsletter right after AIC. So that newsletter will be hopefully providing an uh, oversight of all the reserve and resilience related uh, sort of research that have been discussed uh, within the AIC or has been presented uh, as oral or poster presentations. And that could provide um, a good glimpse of what everybody is doing in this field and uh, definitely can be a supportive uh, uh, pathway for, for early to mid-career researchers to uh, find out about novel uh, research projects that are going on. Right. Lots of activities. That's, that's good to hear. Exactly. So, so uh, uh, how does the, the executive committee look like at, at, at the moment? Who, who are the members? Yeah, well, uh, we have quite a good number of uh, uh, early, mid and senior researchers. Um, we have um, David Bartres-Faz, um, uh, 
who's a professor of neuroscience as our chair. Uh, we have an assistant professor, Eider Arenaza Orkio, as um, our vice chair. We have Dr. Samantha Louis as our program chair, and communication chair is Eliza de Polar Ascendi. Uh, also, we have three sitting committee members, uh, including Nikolai Franzmir, uh, Yet Wang, and myself. And we have two student representatives, Harriet Demenitz-King and also Stephanie Schultz. And um, there is um, our immediate past chair, uh, Dr. Prashanti Vamori, um, who's also uh, helping us to have a continuation of what has been previously achieved to now and hopefully to the next uh, group of researchers who will be taking over. Right. And for any uh, early career researchers that, that may be listening to, to this podcast right now, you got, like me, very fascinated by uh, everything you, 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 are, you are telling about this field and, and the PIA in particular. Uh, so if they would like to be involved in, in, in the PIA, um, are there any possibilities for that? Sure. It's an extremely easy job. Uh, our PR is one of the very uh, easygoing and most welcoming PRs, I should say. Again, I'm biased, but, uh, but uh, there are different pathways for that. One pathway is just becoming uh, a member of iStart, and through that, then you can choose the PRs, uh, including our PR. Um, and you can then uh, sort of get involved in different activities from um, collaborations to networking to uh, papers that are currently under development um, and also uh, in potential grant applications and every other activities that are going on. Um, you can also uh, join our LinkedIn uh, page and through that, you can get updates about everything that our PI is doing. And again, you can uh, sort of communicate with other members of the um, PI and, and uh, get to hear from them or start collaborating with them. So these are the main two pathways that you can uh, uh, get involved in our PI. But as I said, our PI is pretty welcoming and everybody uh, early, mid, or senior researchers are uh, most welcome to join in and um, uh, contribute to, uh, to our PR. So are there any, uh, any activities planned for the next year or maybe years? Uh, yes, there are many activities indeed. Um, as I mentioned, the review paper on neurodevelopmental disorders and reserve. Um, also, we are uh, having... Um, uh, some of our PR members working closely on how and what the role of gender and sex uh, reserve is, and also how ethnocultural different groups uh, can have different reserve potentials, and what does that mean in terms and in relation to Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Um, so these uh, projects are ongoing, and again, as I mentioned, we, we welcome anybody who wants to join in and help us with the progression of these, these projects. Are, are, you, are you planning to go to AIC yourself this year? Yeah, yeah I, well, I was planning and I was hoping and I'm still hoping. But as uh, you can imagine, it all depends on the uh, 
um, permission and support of the university due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so um, from Australia to the US, it's quite a bit of uh, way. And so uh, the flights are pretty long usually. Um, and that requires permission from the university because of all the uh, sort of insurance related consequences and so on. So um, if I get the permission, then I'll be delighted to go and attend in person. Right. And uh, are, you, are you presenting anything? Uh, no, I'm not. This year, my data um, and also my results were not uh, ready to be presented. Hopefully for next year, I'll be presenting. But one of the, my postdocs is presenting. That's always good. So, so, so many thanks. So it's, it's time to end uh, today's podcast recording. Uh, but before we go, I, I do have a final question. So what, if, advi what advice would you give to any aspiring dementia researchers out there who are thinking of looking into dementia? Yeah, dementia research is pretty interesting. And also it has huge translational value into, into the life of um, other individuals. So um, no matter what uh, kind of uh, research you're interested in, as long as it's related to dementia and specifically Alzheimer's disease, I'm sure that your path uh, will help somebody in future. Um, there are, um, of course, some potential difficulties like any other field of research. Uh, but what I usually tell my postdocs and also my students is that if you work hard before submitting anything, which is usually a grant application, or a paper, then definitely you don't need to resubmit it. So that means that spend enough time, don't rush into submitting or public uh, or uh, uh, submitting a manuscript or submitting a grant application when they're not ready. Work on it, even if it takes two years, it's better than just keep repeating yourself and resubmitting without success. So. I usually encourage everybody to work hard before um, going for any submission and I guess that that could be something that our early to mid-career researchers can also uh, consider. Yeah, that is uh, some very solid advice. So many thanks to you, Amit, for taking the time to, to join us today and it was a pleasure uh, talking with you. No problem at all and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. You'll find profiles on today's panellists and information on how to become involved in iStart on our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk and also at als.org forward slash iStart. We'll be back tomorrow with the next recording in our iStart PIA Relay podcast series. Finally, please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast through your website, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and in all the other places you find your podcasts. Thank you.